you are going to disagree. That's a normal, inevitable part of doing work together, of interacting with other humans. And that's not a bad thing. I'm a huge fan of constructive conflict. And I do think managers have a responsibility to acknowledge the tensions that will arise, give them air, and help people have constructive conversations. Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. This season on Joy at Work, we'll talk to people who are driving innovation using joy as their fuel and as their foundation. In our research about Joy at Work, we found that people are a primary driver of joy. We all experience joy when we're working in harmony with the people we like and respect. But what if you don't get along with the people around you? Today, let's think about how we can build better relationships at work. Let's welcome Amy Gallo. Amy is a contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review. Her new book is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. It was named one of the 22 new books that you should consider reading before the year is out by Fortune Magazine. So first, welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Well, it's a hot topic these days, right? Joy at work. And in your new book, you dig at some of the hardest and more challenging parts of work. There's disagreement. There are difficult situations. There are difficult people. What got you to write this book? So I actually wrote a previous book called The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And once that book came out in 2017, I started doing talks and workshops based on that book and sharing a you know straightforward, practical approach to handling conflict. But I noticed something would happen every time I ended one of those talks. So if it was virtual, I would notice a, you know some questions in the chat, or if it was in person, people would come up to me afterward and they would say, all those frameworks and tools are super useful, but I have this one coworker. And then they would describe someone who just was defying their expectations, their sense of what was appropriate at work, and they really wanted help. And I often didn't have good answers for them about what to do. And so my purpose with this book is to help those people, those people who are dealing with someone who's particularly challenging, difficult, pushing their buttons, general advice about how to deal with difficult people doesn't often work in many situations because you're dealing with very specific behaviors. And there's research about how to deal with those specific behaviors. We just need to translate that to advice. And that's what I try to do is take eight different archetypes of difficult people and give very specific type-based suggestions for tactics, phrases that you can use to try to improve that relationship. I want to come to those insights and tactics in a moment, but you know, we've all probably been that person that you described, yes. whether in personal situations or in the workplace. And we've talked a lot in the prior podcasts about the importance of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, situational awareness. But more broadly, Amy, you know, when we improve our relationships at work, what happens? What unlocks? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The research I did for the book, it was very clear that when our relationships with our coworkers are strong, they can be a source of energy, support, growth, joy. But when they fracture, they cause us anguish, frustration, and even grief. And so really, there's tons of research that shows the benefits of getting along with the people we work with. And to be clear, I don't mean agree with them all the time, share the same worldview. I simply mean having functional relationships, even moments of connection, moments of joy. And, you know, there's tons of research that shows that teams of friends perform better. People who have supportive coworkers report feeling less stress. Being close with your colleagues increases in 
information sharing, idea sharing, self-confidence, even our resilience. We're able to bounce back from stressful situations when we have stronger relationships at work. One of my favorite pieces of research I found was a research team at Rutgers University found that groups of colleagues who thought of one another as friends actually got higher scores on their performance reviews. So we really see it's not just a feel-good thing to have friends or to have positive relationships. We see it enhance performance, creativity, as I said, information sharing. There's just so many positive benefits to having strong relationships. Now, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. And you've heard the term, you know, being on the same page. Yeah. Well, and let's be clear, when you say get on the same page, I think what you mean is that you actually understand one another, right? And it's not, again, that you have a shared worldview. I want to make that very clear. When I say getting along, I don't mean that you see things the exact same way. What I mean is that you're able to navigate interactions. You're able to navigate disagreements, conflicts, and come to new ideas, resolutions. You know, in the case of consulting, you're able to come to a path forward, whether it's for a change management program or for a new initiative or a new strategy. So, you know, getting on the same page requires that we acknowledge that people are going to see things differently. And I think if I had any advice for a team leader, whether you're at the highest levels of an organization or you're managing a team of two, is if you're trying to convene people who are trying to do hard work, and that might be, you know, a change management initiative, as I said, or navigating uncertainty, doing something completely new, it is to acknowledge upfront that you are going to disagree. That's a normal, inevitable part of doing work together, of interacting with other humans. And that's not a bad thing because so much of the conflict or the negative, unhealthy conflict comes when we try to avoid actually disagreeing. And if we accept that, that's okay. We're going to dissent. We're going to debate. We're going to share ideas. We're going to let the best ideas win. It's not about egos. It's not about our personalities. This is about how we actually come up with the best work and we're going to disagree in the process. I think that's one of the most important things leaders can do. Well, that resonates very well. Well, with my own experience, we talk a lot about the difference between agreement and alignment. There's no way you're going to get 100% agreement, especially if you're respecting and need diversity to get a better outcome. And uh, the alignment part is where, okay, the process was fair. We heard everyone. We made the trade-off. We had different judgments. We voted, whatever. And now let's align around this is the team plan or this is a strategy or this is a resourcing approach. So that makes a lot of sense, sort of uh, making the differences work for you versus work against you. Yeah, one of the norms I've seen teams use is disagree and then commit. And I think that goes to the alignment you're talking about is that it's okay to not share the same viewpoint on how we should execute this strategy. But once we've made the decision about how to do it, we have to commit and follow through. So you allow the disagreement to happen. You allow the discussion to air out everyone's viewpoints. But then once we're on the train, everyone's on the train. Now, I suppose we can all agree that innovation comes when we bring the best minds, the best ideas from whatever source to the table. And it can be coming from very different people, very different backgrounds. And that's kind of the beauty of the outcome eventually. But tactically and just tips wise, how do you bring different people from your experience together to create that winning spirit, that winning approach, that winning team? Yeah, I mean, I th again, I, th I think one of the most important things you can do is set norms right away. How are we going to interact? Because I think oftentimes we focus on the mission or our purpose as a team. What are we going to achieve? What are our targets? And we don't actually have a conversation about how do we want to interact with each other as we achieve that mission, as we reach those targets. And that might be that we trust one another, that we allow for dissent and debate, that we are openly communicate about any grievance 
grievances we have that we might even agree these are our team values. We're going to live according to these values. Maybe that's equity and fairness, whatever the values that are important. But I think lots of times new teams skip the step of agreeing on how they want to interact with one another. And I think that's a real missed opportunity to bring people together and and work together. I mean, tension on a team is not a bad thing. In fact, there are tensions you navigate all the time. People who care about quality and other people who care more about efficiency, people who care about, you know, the team specific work and people who have an enterprise wide view. There are all these tensions that we're navigating all the time. And we have to acknowledge that those tensions exist. Otherwise, it starts to become personal. So if you care about quality and I care about efficiency, you might think I'm careless and I might think you're slow. And that then becomes about who we are as people, not the work. And I think it's really important to acknowledge we're going to have those tensions. This is a tension. Let's name it. And then let's decide where in the tension we want to be. It's not Alex versus Amy. It's quality versus efficiency. And we can decide what we want to do as a team that's going to work best for this particular project. Your leadership discipline point is key, sort of getting explicit the unspoken rules, biases, issues, approach, temperament, ways of working. Just make explicit how we work. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen teams completely fall apart about a disagreement over whether it's okay to be five minutes late to a meeting. And it becomes because then it becomes about respect, about being organized or disorganized. And it's a minor thing where, honestly, if we just had a discussion at the beginning, what's appropriate? Do we expect people to be on time? Do we expect them to be late? What's an appropriate excuse for being late? Things like that. How do we want to speak with one another? How do we want to communicate? I've seen people have horrible fights over the fact that I email him and then he texts me back. I don't want to get texts. It's like, okay, well then tell him that, right? Like they're just things that we make these assumptions about how things should be rather than saying this is how we as a team will actually communicate. These are our norms. These are our rules of engagement. It's about putting yourself in the other person's shoes and acknowledging that your perspective is just one perspective. I'll actually tell you a story talking about a misunderstanding. Working remotely really is just a context which is ripe for miscommunication and misunderstanding. And I had a colleague who was working with another other colleague, they were having phone calls. And every time she asked her colleague a question, there was a long pause. And she was convinced that this other person was multitasking, was answering emails during the call, was just not paying attention. So she said, you know what, I'm going to catch her in the act. We're going to do a video call instead. So she can't multitask. And if she is, I'll see what she's doing. I'll call her out. They got on the video call, meetings going along, asked her colleague a question, and her colleague just pauses and looks up. And (laughs) my friend said, wait, are you thinking? And she said, yeah, I'm just sort of, it takes me a while to process things. And that pause had created all of this stress and anxiety. And my friend had told herself this whole story about how horrible her colleague was when really it was just a matter of her pacing and how she actually processed information. That's so enlightening because we always assume that everyone looks at the world in the same way. Yes. But you raise some good examples there about the importance of just basic information, self-awareness, situational awareness. There's also the sense of how do you build trust with the information and And I was just wondering, as you were describing some of the conflict situations, does it make sense when you're starting with a new team or a new project to just sit down and say, this is how I do things. I hate texts. You know, I hate long meetings. I hate people being late. 
I work with an organization where everyone in the organization has a user manual. So it's the user manual to Amy or the user manual to Alex. And they put things like, I'm a vegetarian. So if you're scheduling a team dinner, please consider that. Or I am very quick on responding to text, but my inbox is often very full and I'm not able to respond to emails quickly. I care a lot about punctuality. So if you're late to a meeting, I tend to interpret that as disrespect, just so you know. Just making clear all of your preferences, values, your assumptions. And then when this team is all working together, they all have each other's user manuals. It shortcuts a lot of the, as you say, the sort of trust building that has to happen because you know one another a little bit better. You know what to expect. You're able to have empathy for them and you're able to modify your style a little bit to accommodate their preferences. And the expectation isn't that you'll modify to the point where you do everything they say in their user manual. It just generates awareness. One of the other things I would say, and this is especially true for teams that are getting together for the first time, like a consulting team or people who are working remotely, is that you really have to be intentional about the way you communicate. And what I mean is actually to state your intention. Because someone says something, we often presume what their intention is. So if whatever they say hurts me, I presume their intention was to hurt me. But that's not the case at all. Well, one of the uh, coaching we give to our young consultants, because, you know, as a consultant, you're trained to sort of look, diagnose, what's the even better if, how can you improve your business or your community or your company or whatever. The problem is to think about inspiring versus critiquing. Mm. Yeah. And I would even say, you know, that point I was making about intention, if you are going to deliver some criticism to someone, make clear why you're doing it, right? So I need to give you some feedback. I'm doing this because I want us to be able to work better together, or I want this project to succeed, or I want the client to be happy. Whatever your intention is with that feedback, say it clearly. I mean, what I always like to do also is just to preface the question with the preface, <laughs> right? This is why I'm asking the question. But that kind of reassures people that you have the right intention. You're trying to be constructive. You're not pointing out and getting a gotcha on someone. That's right. That's great. I think that kind of disarms people's natural reactions to be defensive about what they said or what they're doing. Yeah. Agreed. Now, we've been talking about eliminating unnecessary conflict because it does make people feel uncomfortable. You'd rather not have it, all else equal. But sometimes creative tension is a good thing. And in the spirit of, you know, fueling new ideas and innovation, how do you how do you get that out of teams? So I actually wrote an article for HBR called Why We Should Be Disagreeing More at Work, which is an incredibly popular article. And Linda Hill at, at Harvard Business School uses the phrase creative friction, where innovation comes from you and I not seeing the idea or the project or the product in the same way, having to share our assumptions, having to hash it out, having to argue what are the pros and cons of each approach, and also being willing to say, I don't think that will work because of this, but I think this could work, right? Building on one another's ideas rather than just pushing one another's ideas out of the way to make room for our own. And I'm a huge fan of constructive conflict. And I do think managers have a responsibility to acknowledge the tensions that will arise, give them air and help people have constructive conversations. But ultimately, we want the best ideas to rise to the top. Well, I can see how conflict would hurt you if it's about either or or yes, but. And if you have the yes and conversation, your point about building on good ideas or incomplete ideas to get even better, that's an uplifting conversation. That's not as people folding their arms and saying, well, your idea wasn't any better. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and to your point, how can you inspire people rather than critique them, right? How can you inspire new ideas? How can you inspire people to contribute 
Now, we talked a bit about sort of nonverbal cues and learning in the workplace, and clearly we're in a world where we've got remote and hybrid work that's more broadly adopted. How can you assure us <laughs> that we can communicate even more clearly, even when we're not in the same room, and avoid some of the pitfalls that you allude to, Amy? Yeah. I mean, I think reminding yourself on a daily basis, I have to do this all the time when I'm on a screen. I mean, I find myself saying to myself, I'm a human. These are humans. <laughs> it can feel so disconnecting and dehumanizing to be in these environments. So I just try to remind myself over and over, we're people. These people have challenges. I have challenges. I don't see what they're going through. Just to sort of soften a little bit of the tension or the conflicts that come up. And I'll go back to one of the tips I shared earlier about sharing your intention. I think remote and hybrid environment, it's even more important because we're missing all of the nonverbal cues, as you say. We're not seeing the context in which something's happening. You know, I share this story in the book, planning a panel with someone. And in the middle of this conversation, he told me everything he wanted to do. And it was my turn to tell him what I thought. And he just started looking off screen. He seemed so distracted. I was like, why did he even ask? He clearly has no interest in what I have to say. And, you know, at the end of the call, he said, oh, I'm sorry if I looked a little distracted. My son is home because he's doing online school during the pandemic. And he made me pancakes. And it was just like, oh, right, that's a sweet moment. And if I had seen that, I would have, you know, known he was listening. And it was clear he responded in a way that made it clear he had heard everything I said, but I had told myself a story about who he was and what he was doing that was completely false. And I think, again, if you can share your intention or even just say, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Amy, my son's here with pancakes. I'm still listening, but I'm going to, you know, talk to him or get, you know, whatever. Or can we pause for five minutes? Just being very intentional about making clear what you're experiencing, what you hope to achieve out of a conversation, why you're saying something the way you are saying it. You know, and even in email, I've gotten emails from people who say the purpose of this email is to blah, blah, blah. And then they shared whatever information. And at first I thought, well, that's overdoing it. But it's actually really helpful context for me in reading that. It sets the tone for how I see it and how I interpret it. Well, having young kids try to make pancakes before I can see why <laughs> the father would be really worried about making, that's right. keep, keeping an eye on what they're up to. That's right. <laughs> keep that flame down, son. <laughs> that's uh, that's right. But uh, you're right. There's this, da this danger in the new world of you know being digital zombies and no longer feeling connected and human. Now, speaking of that, in the original HBR article that I wrote on Making Joy a Priority, we talked about the joy gap. And this applied to baby boomers like myself, Gen Xers, millennials, Generation Z. And of course, now we're, you got a world where the new generation has got a really good voice and going to reform the workplace and insisting on it, in fact. So I'm curious how you see the next generation of workers in the workforce changing the norms that we've maybe gotten used to. Yeah. You know, there's all of these like sensational headlines about the differences in generation. But some researchers show that it's actually there's not that big of a gap. In fact, what Gen Xers cared about when they were 25 is the same thing that boomers cared about when they were 25 or Gen Zers cared about when they were 25. So I do think the younger generations, no matter whether they're Gen X or Gen Z or millennials, are pushing us to think about how do we interact at work? How do we have relationships? And I think that one of the things that Gen Z in particular are doing, and I have a teenage daughter that's part of that generation, is this focus on mental health and the idea that mental well-being is so critical, not just in work, but in life. And I think that's going to really push us to rethink not just our relationships with one another, but our relationship with work. Yeah, I think the need for flexibility and how that's expressed, as well as the mental health opportunity 
for all generations is clearly something that's come to the fore. It's interesting in our research, we found that joy gap, if you will, was the same across all the generations and across geographies. I think you're right. We'd be in a better place. We'd have a more joyful set of communities, including the work community, if we looked at what we share about what we want out of work, what we want out of each other. Obviously, we've alluded to the fact that the world is just every type of crisis in the world, and we all see it at the same time. So that creates a mental health pressure. But how do we work better together when we have this never normal, no normal kind of world? I think one of the most important things is just to have that awareness that you and the people around you are under stress. And just because you're all under the same stress or probably different stressors, but the same level doesn't mean that it's business as usual. We have to be really attentive to one another's emotional needs. And that doesn't mean you have to meet them. It just means that you have to be aware that they're likely not being met. And that means that we're going to react and we're going to snap at people. I think forgiveness is one of the most important things we can bring to the workplace right now because we're not our best selves all the time. And when we make mistakes, we need the people around us to accept that, tell us when we make a mistake, and then give us room to move on and try again. I think those are great lessons that you've shared there. Did anything surprise you in your research? You know, I knew that negative interactions, negative relationships were bad for you. Like I knew they had an impact. The thing I didn't realize was the extent of the impact. That really surprised me when I dug into the research. There's another study that looked at married couples. The researchers would make a cut on the participant's arms, a minor cut, and then would monitor its healing rate. And what they found is that couples who reported animosity in their relationships, the cuts would take much longer to heal. So it was actually impairing our bodies. The animosity in our relationships was impairing our body's ability to heal itself. And, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is we tend to our relationships for our own well-being, not just for that other person, but to just for our own well-being and our own health. It's important to acknowledge when the relationships are toxic or unhealthy and take steps to improve them if we can. I have taken a lot of the advice to heart myself, and I think I'm quicker to calm down now. I'm a little less reactive. I do tend to give people the benefit of the doubt more. And the thing I think I really took away from the research, and I hope I'm really putting into practice, is you know our brains are meaning-making machines. So when something happens, we tell ourselves a story about it, and that story right away becomes very true to us. And I think one of the things I really am trying to do over and over when I interact with people, and it's not a positive interaction action is to say, okay, what's the story I'm telling myself versus what's actually true? And when I hone in on the facts, oftentimes the story I told myself is not at all true. And typically it's not a good story. It usually portrays me as the hero and them as the villain. So I'm trying to really question those stories as my mind makes them to make sure that I'm giving these relationships, these interactions, the room to change and breathe and get better. That's interesting analogy. Sometimes we end our day and say, was that a thriller, a romantic comedy or an action <laughs> movie that I just went through? <laughs> I can empathize with that a lot. You know, what are the stories we tell ourselves or even the lies, like you said? Well, great. This has been an amazing conversation. I'd like to give you the last word. I mean, what makes you excited about the future overall? You're an optimistic person. Now you look at everyone's intentions. You look at it that way. That's great. Well, what do you see? It is hard to be optimistic about the future right now. <laughs> there's a lot that is stressful, that is concerning. There's a lot of uncertainty, both politically and societally. But, you know, I always think about that Mr. Rogers quote when he talked about how his mom said, when you see something scary on the news, look for the helpers. And I think the thing that makes me hopeful is seeing the people who are really committed 
committed to changing the way our world works. They're really putting in the work to change it. That's what gives me hope. It's very inspiring, the human spirit, the people power. Thank you very much, Amy, so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Alex. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. And I'm excited to share that my new book, Joy Works, is coming this fall. I cannot wait to share this deeper exploration of joy at work with you. Joy Works is available for pre-order now wherever you buy books. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward during uncertain times. We're inspired by Fast Forward, Carney's breakthrough business builder. Fast Forward works with leaders across the globe to inspire new business models that enhance stakeholder value and accelerate tech-enabled growth. Learn more about the show and about our innovative work at carney.com slash joy at work. And if you enjoyed this show, please check out the other shows in the Carney Podcast Network, including Inside the Mind. Carney's consumer practice leaders uncover how and why people shop today. What does our new consumer behavior mean for the future of the retail industry? And on Supply Chain Shocks, our operations partners explore how supply chains are transforming in order to meet new demands and constraints. <laughs>